right, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews you can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. It's kind of slow going here in 2020 because we haven't had very many new movies to really tout, at least not theatrically anyway. But if you're interested in any of my reviews for a lot of movies that came out over the last four to five years, you can check out the link to my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Find that link at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the third of this three-part series looking at science fiction films of the 1980s, which feature underwater crews. The last two films I talked about were Deep Star 6 and Leviathan. Today I'm going to be getting into a film that really inspired those two movies to get rushed into theaters. From 1989, The Abyss. This one is much less of a horror film. In fact, it's not a horror film at all as compared to those other two movies. The Abyss is a PG-13 rated movie. It does have brief nudity, language, and violence. The runtime, well, it depends on which version you're watching. This is a movie that has been long, long overdue for coming out on Blu-ray, by the way. I have the Laserdisc, I have a DVD of this special edition. The theatrical release is two hours and 19 minutes. The special edition, and I'll talk about what that is during the course of this review, the special edition is two hours and 51 minutes. Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio are the two main stars. Michael Bean, Leo Burmester, Todd Graff, Kimberly Scott, Chris Murphy, Captain Kid Brewer, Chris Elliott, they're all in this film. The director is James Cameron, and the screenplay is also credited to James Cameron. Now, James Cameron, as we all know today, he's very much interested in the ocean. He has made quite a few movies, a couple of documentaries about exploring the ocean, as well as Titanic. But he also, before that, did The Abyss and Piranha 2, which I covered a few episodes ago. Now, Cameron did not experience the ocean really that much growing up, or really not at all. He had been landlocked on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls for most of his life. He became fascinated during his teenage years with marine science. He started ravenously watching TV documentaries by Jacques Cousteau. He wanted to get dive certified. He wanted to become a marine biologist, in fact. So around 16 or 17 years old, He did get that certification. He started attending weekly lectures that were done in Buffalo, New York. This science seminar series done at the university in Buffalo. One of those lectures happened to be about deep sea diving and decompression considerations. Now, in the speech that was given during this lecture, it included a filmed experiment that involved a commercial diver who attempted to breathe using an oxygenated saline solution instead of an oxygen tank. Now, if successful... This test could mean that humans one day might be able to dive into deeper deep-sea environments than they had been in the past. This lecture inspired Cameron to write a short story called The Abyss. And The Abyss, in his story, at least in these early days, featured scientists who were living in this submersible underwater facility near the Cayman Trough. They used this saline solution to make deep dives into the trough, but feeling oneness with the ocean, they decided they never wanted to return back to the surface. Rescue divers came in. They felt the same euphoria as they started looking for the scientists. They decided also never to come back. The story ended when we had one last diver going into the darkness of the abyss to experience this pulsing rapture of the deep. 
Cameron says this was really much more of a psychological piece, exploring kind of a return to the womb experience, this breathing of life-sustaining liquid as we did when we were in the womb. And then by going into this womb of the abyss, we become reborn. Kind of deep stuff for a teenager. Now, Cameron did not intend to make the abyss after he had made Aliens. He wanted a break from a lot of the effects-heavy science fiction films, but he didn't know really what he wanted to do. So Cameron's wife, and also his story editor and producer at the time, Gail Ann Hurd, she suggested that he flesh out this story that he had done about divers near this abyss. So they pitched the idea while they were lunching with these executives from 20th Century Fox, and they enthusiastically encouraged them to develop a script, give them a budget proposal as soon as they could. So Cameron immediately started to draw up this 62-page single-space treatment. He changed a lot from his original story. For instance, scientists, he felt, were less relatable, less commercial. So he changed the protagonist to something that worked for him for his prior couple of films, working-class heroes who were put into extraordinary circumstances. The execs at Fox were very enamored of this. They gave him the green light to continue. So Cameron immediately hired a research assistant to go out and procure books and videos and anything that he could find by Jacques Cousteau and others on ocean technology and exploration with an emphasis on the current state of the industry. Cameron found influence from Cousteau's expression of humanity, living in this harmonic existence with all other living creatures that we encounter. Now, Cameron saw his story more like a metaphor for diving. At first, it's a horrible and challenging experience, but if you push yourself through that urge to panic when you're first learning to dive, you start to get used to it, and eventually... You experience this sense of flight, the spiritual awakening of seeing the wonder and the beauty for life in the universe that you never knew existed. Now, during this period, the relationship between Hurd and Cameron started to change. Hurd and Cameron, they had met a decade prior. They were both professionals working in the film industry for Roger Corman, and they later took that professionalism into a personal relationship, and they became married in 1985 while continuing to work together as filmmakers. He wrote and directed while she produced and edited his scripts. And their marriage during this pre-production period started to strain. And by the time of post-production, they were divorcing, but they continued as professional partners throughout all of this. The screenplay did exist before their marital issues, so Cameron and Hurd insist that their relationship dynamic comparisons to their main characters, two professionals who join their careers, and then those careers stifle their romance. Those are completely coincidental. You can believe that or not, but the coincidence did hit so close to home for Cameron that it nearly kept him from going forward with this film. But unlike Bud and Lindsay, the two main characters of The Abyss, no reconciliation took place at the end. Cameron instead married Catherine Bigelow eight days after the film's release. Now, as far as the final film, it's set somewhat in the near future, although the real future, the Cold War politics of The Abyss did not necessarily work out so well in terms of guessing what it would be like over the next five years. We find Virgil Brigman, he's also known as Bud, that's what I'll call him in this film. He's played by Ed Harris. He's the lead foreman of Deep Core, which is this underwater oil drilling rig about 2,000 feet deep in the ocean. Deep Core receives word of this downed U.S. Navy nuclear submarine in the area near the Cayman Trough, 
As Russian submarines are also close by, foul play is suspected. The crew has to escort Bud's soon-to-be ex-wife, Lindsay. She happens to have been the project engineer for Deep Core, And a crew of Navy SEALs who are there for a rescue mission of that downed sub. A hurricane cuts communication outside, and that effectively leaves Navy SEAL Lieutenant Coffey, played by Michael Bean, in command. Psychosis from pressurization starts to make Coffee unstable and paranoid, and he starts viewing the various neon-colored NTIs, this non-intestrial intelligence, who happen to be in the nearby abyss as enemy Russian vessels that have to be destroyed. So that's the science fiction component, the aliens that are living in the abyss, unbeknownst to all of humanity outside of it. Now, Cameron's first directorial effort, Piranha 2, The Spawning, which I talked about a few episodes before this one, that experience taught him that prolonged filming in the ocean was pretty much impossible. They needed to eliminate all of the variables, the currents, the temperatures, the weather, the visibility, the lighting, the sea life, anything that was going to destroy what they were trying to make. They needed also better underwater communication, better photography, freedom of movement, especially using submersibles. And so they looked for places that were contained to be able to adjust as they needed to accommodate their underwater sets as well. The largest tanks that were available contained corrosive salt water. They didn't have filtration or heat that they needed, so they would need to search for other vessels that were not necessarily tanks that were large enough to retrofit to their specific needs. Now, an associate of Cameron's mentioned that there was this abandoned facility in Gaffney, South Carolina, the Cherokee Nuclear Power Station. This unfinished nuclear power station was bought out by this film entrepreneur from North Carolina called Earl Owensby. He was in the midst of trying to make it a film studio, and so Cameron was interested in seeing what he had there and whether he could make it work for the purpose of shooting this mostly underwater film. The existing turbine pit that was offered was too small for their needs, but Cameron, while he was there, he saw this reactor containment building nearby, and he suggested that they could make the world's largest underwater studio right here in Gaffney, South Carolina, by converting that containment building that Owensby had tagged as a 2,000-seat amphitheater to be a large tank that filmmakers could use to make their movies in a very controllable environment. So they could build their set while it was dry and then flood it instead of having to build underwater, which was extremely difficult. So they entered into this verbal agreement with Owensby to use his facilities for $2.25 million. Now, Deep Core, the underwater oil rig, it would go on to be the largest underwater set ever built at that time. It would reside in what they would come to call as a tank, this massive pool that was within the reactor containment building. It was filled with about seven and a half million gallons of heated and filtered water. It had three airtight compartments for filming, and it had an underwater air tank filling station. The tank took about five days to fill. They used water from a nearby lake. And on top of it, they would put a 215-foot in diameter circular tarpaulin and millions of black polystyrene beads to block out any light. B tank, that would be the other pool with about 2.5 million gallons of water that had turbines that could simulate wind and rain and waves, and they could use it for miniatures and other quick work while they were filming in A tank. During casting, Cameron told auditioning actors that they might die (laughs) while they're making the abyss. He wanted to screen out all of these actors for what they were going to be enduring, and he wanted especially to screen them for claustrophobia and aquaphobia. Actors who were hired started off their first week on this boat off of Grand Cayman. They would get scuba certified before coming back to South Carolina for additional 
diving training using helmets. Now, Fox wanted a popular lead actor to head the film, but Cameron said no big stars. He didn't want to have to give anybody special treatment. So Ed Harris, he happened to be who Cameron had in mind. He signed a bit late. He came after the Cayman trip where everybody got certified, so he had to learn to dive in a lake that he happened to be nearby. Harris was initially skeptical about taking this role, but Cameron showed him that there were humanistic elements in his script, and he was won over. Now, after meeting Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, Cameron had doubts because she seemed, in person, to be very delicate, very feminine, unlike Lindsay, at least how he envisioned her. So he went ahead with the reading anyway, and she nailed it. She convinced him that she was the perfect person to play Lindsay Brigman. Now, in other casting, Michael Bean, who happened to be here in his third film for Cameron, he was one of the stars of The Terminator as well as Aliens. This time, he was going to be playing the heavy, even though you could argue he's not really evil. Now, Bean asked if there could be more explanation for his character, Lieutenant Coffey's instability. So they brainstormed high-pressure nervous syndrome. That was a real-life phenomenon that experts say is kind of like going into an acid trip. That would afflict Coffee after decompression, make him paranoid, make him unstable. And that would be the rationale for Coffee being the bad guy. Now, during this period, there was a writer's strike. So comedian Chris Elliott, he decided he was going to audition for Hippie, the conspiracy-touting character, kind of a, a comical character in the film. Cameron brought him in. He liked him, but he preferred Todd Graff for that role. But he liked Elliott enough to create another role for him, pretty much on the spot. He would write his lines on a napkin to give that wasn't in the script. Cameron also wrote a part for another actor he had come to prefer, Lance Hendrickson. He was going to play Commodore DeMarco, but he was unavailable at the time they started to film. Now, midway into the shoot, Owensby, the owner of the facility, sent them a bill for $300,000. He was livid. He tried to evict them because he discovered physical damage and a lot of misuse of his equipment. They took it to court. A judge issued a restraining order against Owensby from interfering until the film was finished. Owensby later sued for over $2 million for leaving the reactor untidy and needing repairs, and they eventually settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Now, Cameron also, during this period, not only did they upset Owensby, but they upset the locals in Gaffney, South Carolina. Cameron did a Rolling Stone interview. He called Gaffney a cultural wasteland and that it would have been much more interesting to film in Tibet than in Gaffney. Master Antonio made it even worse. She called Gaffney expendable, given that the government was allowing a nuclear reactor nearby. At least they did at one time. Cameron later added that if there were a meltdown to have happened there... Few would have shed a tear and really obviously PO'd all of the denizens of Gaffney. The mayor, Gaffney, responded that while they appreciated the business that they brought in, they left behind a wasteland of their own of pollution and repairs. In Making the Abyss, Cameron wanted something called real for real, stressing authenticity whenever possible. Props were not just cosmetic. In fact, lives depended on their functionality. They really wanted to use real things whenever possible. When a compartment would get flooded, the genuinely frightened actors, they knew that a mishap might actually cause them to drown. They called this survival acting. They were perpetually under siege. They would respond with authentic apprehension at what was going on around them. Cameron wanted actors to do real acting underwater, so 10 prototype diving helmets with large illuminated faceplates that could defog. These helmets had built-in regulators that would leave their mouths free to talk. 
Microphones were also put into these helmets that allowed underwater communication, but Cameron decided that he could speak to them. They could not respond in the way their PA system ran, but everybody in these helmets could live record their dialogue. They didn't have to do their dialogue in post using these helmets. Underwater scenes for The Abyss came first, while everybody was fresh and enthusiastic to do the film. Cameron estimates that that enthusiasm pretty much evaporated about three hours into the first day of the shoot. The cast and crew developed headaches from the pressure. They had ear infections from the water. They, their eyes were irritated. Their hair was falling out from all of the chlorine. The filtration and heating pipes, they would regularly rupture from the pressure. The tarp, the tarpaulin took damage during a thunderstorm and it split completely a few weeks into the shoot. So they had to work nights for the last half of their time there. The weather started turning cold, too. They sat in hot tubs to keep from freezing while they were doing pre-dive briefings and to eat lunch. And in the freezing water, because they lost the ability to heat it, they started looking forward to something called Diver's Delight, the warm afterglow that washes over them when they urinate in their wetsuits. Now, as changing conditions persistently rearranged the scenes that they could shoot, nobody was allowed to leave the set. Prolonged technical challenges often bored the actors who were there idling. Sometimes they would go without performing all day, waiting for all of these technical issues to be solved. Master Antonio, she started meditating to maintain her sanity with what was going on there. Kimberly Scott, she knitted about five sweaters during that time. The crew also observed that Cameron had severe tunnel vision that blinded him from recognizing the concerns of others. The actors also claimed that Cameron was more interested in his technical toys than in human beings. Cameron, when hearing this, he offered little sympathy. He stated that while all of these actors are sitting around, the technical crew is busting their butts to make everything happen. Extended dives below 30 feet necessitated decompression before surfacing. Sometimes Cameron ran out of oxygen when he was on the bottom of the tank, and that required a hose to be dropped down to feed air into his suit. And during decompression, he would hang upside down 10 feet below the surface because his helmet weighed so much, it was about 28 pounds, and that caused a lot of pressure on his shoulders, so he would watch these dailies upside down on an inverted monitor. Everybody on the set started to grow irritable. Doors slamming. Cars would get kicked, profanity-laced ranting. That was all prevalent during this period. It got worse over time. As they were always indoors, they called the studio their minimum security prison, Gulag Gaffney. Five separate rats were used to film scenes demonstrating the breathing of fluorocarbon emulsion. Although animal lovers absolutely hate that scene, all of those rats did survive. Cameron, in fact, kept one of them as a pet. British censors, though, cut that scene out because the royal veterinarian felt that it did cause pain to the rat. It was abusive, so British audiences, at least in theaters, didn't get to see it. Although rats could breathe fluorocarbon, it was not approved by the FDA for human use. So Ed Harris, he held his breath in pink-colored water. He would pretend to breathe it in. Harris wore special contact lenses so he could focus through the water. And while he was underwater, he would open his pink-tinted faceplate to receive oxygen from a safety diver nearby. Harris considers the days of being dragged sideways. He was actually supposed to be 
falling in his dive, but they shot it sideways to make it easier. Those days holding his breath with water in his helmet while being dragged were the worst of his entire experience, and that was saying a lot given how grueling it was. After several hours of doing this, Harris's irritated eyes would swell shut. He looked like a beaten boxer at the end of a prize fight. And one time it was really bad. Harris's safety diver, he got hung up in a cable and he was not there to provide oxygen when needed. So another safety diver hastily arrived, but he inserted his regulator upside down and that filled Harris's lungs with water and that caused several seconds of mortifying panic. Thinking he was pretty much a goner, Harris, when he finally got the oxygen he needed, he went ballistic. He left the set. He was shaken. He was weeping on the drive to the hotel. He couldn't even take a shower. He was so repulsed by the thought of any more water on his body. At some point to promote the film, a reporter was brought in from Premiere Magazine. He arrived on set to do a piece for The Abyss. The cast and crew did sign NDAs not to reveal details about the alien subplot. Harris did not like this reporter's attitude, though. He refused to talk to him altogether, and that sparked immediate speculation of a troubled shoot. Cameron claimed that the piece, when it was published, was full of all kinds of inaccuracies and fabrications that tainted all the future coverage of the film in the press. Now, Harris did get the reputation from that article of not wanting to talk at all about his experience on the abyss, but he did, when it was all said and done, make a surprise appearance at the Fox Junket, He thought about it. He was very proud of his accomplishments in making this film. Despite the grueling experience at the time, he decided he went through something that he could be proud of, and he was going to promote it despite all of his hard feelings throughout the making of this film. Todd Graff described this reversal of feeling to the Iran hostages who developed a fondness for their captors. Cameron to them seemed tyrannical when he was on the set, and they felt like prisoners, but When it was all said and done, they felt respect and love for him after he pushed everyone to the limit of their talent, including himself, to make it all happen. Now, Cameron also was putting himself at risk. He also nearly died. One day, the first assistant director neglected to inform him that he was running out of oxygen. He immediately started calling for help, but nobody was going to be there in time, so he discarded all of this heavy equipment that he had on him and these weights to keep him on the bottom of the tank, and he was going to make a push for the surface, and that's when another safety diver came by to feed him a backup regulator, but that regulator was faulty, and it caused Cameron to suck in. Instead of oxygen, he sucked in water. The safety diver misread this as getting the bends, so he kept insisting to take this oxygen, which was really water in his lungs. So Cameron punched him in the face as hard as he could, and he raced topside. When they were all on the surface, Cameron fired not only that safety diver, but also the first assistant director for that incident that almost cost him his life. Master Antonio's worst moment came during a scene in which he's resuscitated after drowning. She spent hours on this cold, wet ground while Ed Harris pounded on her time after time, simulating resuscitative techniques. During one very emotionally anguished sequence that they regarded as their very best take, right in the middle of it, the camera ran out of film. And that caused her to get so upset, she bolted and she screamed, We are not animals. And she left for several hours while Ed Harris had to play his role slapping around a sandbag in her stead. Extended delays doubled the initial $30 million budget. Special effects houses, there were several of them that worked on the effects for this film. They were all working around the clock to meet their deadlines. They incurred a lot of overtime fees to complete these effects for a summer of 1989 release. Cameron sacrificed half of his salary to make up for some of these cost overruns. 
the initial Memorial Day weekend, it slipped into the 4th of July weekend and then again pushed to a July 26th release date that was going to be in a platformed rollout that would slowly expand to a wide release on August 9th. But they were not even going to be ready for July 26th. So they jettisoned the platforming to complete the effects for August 9th altogether. After Cameron asked Fox once again to move the date from August 9th, Fox demanded that film had to be ready on that date or he'd be driving to 1,200 theaters to verbally describe his movie four times a day to the audience. Now, rumors in the press throughout July spread of this troubled production consisting of leaking tanks, clouding erosion, rusting equipment that had muddied the water visibility. They used flocculation techniques to try to make the water much more clear, but that discolored the set and it eroded the dive equipment. There was a big power failure that occurred that found divers lacking visibility. They couldn't even surface safely, and they didn't know who was going to be running out of oxygen at any given moment. That was harrowing. The actors during this time, they referred to the film not as The Abyss, but The Abuse. (laughs) The crew wore t-shirts reading, Life's Abyss, and Then You Dive. And they also had a joke that the sequel's title would be called Son of Abyss. Before the release of the film, Heard led a publicity tour. She wanted to squash a lot of these rumors and to increase interest in the film. She assured the press that the delays were solely to perfect the groundbreaking visual effects. Film writers who attended screened a featurette that was hosted by James Cameron and 25 minutes of work print footage. It was out of context, but it would squash unfavorable comparisons to the more horror-tinged efforts that were in a similar vein, Deep Star 6 and Leviathan. This footage revealed tense thriller elements and a brief look at the alien creatures, denoting that this was going to be a science fiction film. Cameron's work print, when it was all said and done, ran nearly three hours. 20th Century Fox feared that this was just too long for audiences in the 1980s. They were not used to watching three-hour films, so they encouraged him to get it down to two hours. Ironically, in 1990, a three-hour film known as Dances with Wolves became a huge hit. So I guess Fox was wrong about that. Now, after they screened Cameron's long cut, the work print, it drew mixed reactions. The special effects were not completed. So that may have been part of it. The air conditioning in that screening also conked out during it. So people were uncomfortable. So that may have also affected their mood. But that mixed reaction did cause Cameron to consent to winnowing down some of the character touches. He would remove a lot of the Cold War posturing that was in the plot and the alien subplot to annihilate humanity with giant tidal waves at the end of the film. Those were removed. So we got it down to about two hours and 20 minutes or so. Fox wanted to keep the effect scenes, but for Cameron to take out the relationship reconciliation elements instead. But Cameron had final cut. He thought that the relationship was the more important thing, at least at that time. A test screening of the new cut produced enthusiastic results, so Fox acquiesced to the cut as it stood at that time. The Alan Silvestri score that was applied, it evokes an angelic chorus and heraldic horns because Cameron envisioned that the crew finding these aliens was like finding God and his angels at the depths of the ocean. They were not literal angels here in the film, but in the special edition, the aliens do possess a look and a power over humanity to flood the earth, kind of like the story of Genesis. Now, when Bud so-called sees the light at the end of his life, at the end of this film, that's the metaphor for death that we all know, but also the afterlife and the heavens are also evident by what happens in the climax. Cameron brought into this film the subplot of one of his other possessions of UFO sightings. That was something, in addition to diving, he really enjoyed. And he felt that aliens could presumably be easily hiding among us in the unexplored depths of the ocean. And that's why the abyss, this unexplored abyss, was so important. 
Master Antonio, when it was all said and done, she remarked that the abyss is many things, but fun to make was not one of them. She did recognize that the script's central relationship did echo Cameron and Hurd's relationship, so she subconsciously played Lindsay with Hurd's confident demeanor and clipped speech patterns. Master Antonio had signed on to the film because she liked playing a smart-thinking and pragmatic female character, which was a rarity to find, especially in an action movie, but eventually... The physicality, the claustrophobia began to overwhelm her. She claims that during the making of the film, she wanted to kill Cameron at least a dozen times. Once it was released into theaters, The Abyss received mixed positive reviews, mostly praising its special effects. It disappointed, though, at the box office. It came a little too late in the summer. Many speculate to keep up with the big blockbusters that came out in 1989. It debuted at number two in the U.S. in its first weekend of release, and it lingered in the top ten for about two months, but it only scored about $54 million in the U.S., and even less than that internationally for a grand total of about $90 million worldwide. It was considered a pretty big disappointment in the career of James Cameron and for Fox that year. The popularity, though, of The Abyss did grow when it was released on home video, especially a few years later with the release of the special edition that showcased Cameron's more complete vision. This wasn't necessarily the work print that he had made at the time. He went back and re-edited the film with a lot of that old footage into a new cut called the special edition. The Abyss may have been a misfire financially, but it did receive some Oscar nominations. It received nominations for art direction, cinematography, and its sound. It did win one for Best Visual Effects. Deservedly so, it's considered one of the first films to use extensive CG. Beyond all of these pretty sounds and pictures, though, I do think that The Abyss does work very well as a tense relationship drama and as a survival thriller. It has gripping performances by Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastantonio. They are fantastic. Michael Bean also contributes quite well. The technology is impressive, but I do think it's the drama that drives the soul of this very intriguing and suspenseful film throughout most of it. The Abyss, to be sure, it's technically brilliant. It has incredible underwater photography. It's very beautifully lit. It's as bright as can be. The sound work, I think, is equal to the visuals, whether you're within the confines of the rig or echoing out in the middle of the ocean floor. It's all accentuated by this mesmerizing Alan Silvestri score that captures the beauty and the majesty of these fantastical events that are contained within the story. I do think that The Abyss's lack of prominence among many science fiction films comes from several unfortunate circumstances. There were those two other wide-release science fiction thrillers featuring deep-sea mining crews that came out earlier in 1989 that stole a lot of its thunder, Deep Star 6 and Leviathan. Neither of those performed well critically or commercially. That kind of let the air out of the balloon, so to speak. Cameron's higher-profile blockbusters in his filmography also further diminish its reputation. He's made much more higher-profile and better films in his career in the minds of many people so it's undeniably though an ambitious work to say the least it's not unlike steven spielberg's close encounters of the third kind to which abyss probably shares many many thematic parallels especially the extended version if you see that you'll definitely see the echoes of close encounters there however there's also the anti-nuclear suggestion that is reminiscent of the day the earth stood still it's not a film that is considered as groundbreaking in its storytelling as it is in its technical achievements. The alien presence, that's a blessing and a curse for the film. It does add mystique and intrigue during certain moments, but it's also underdeveloped 
especially in the theatrical cut that excises the rationale for their existence being there. So I think the main complaint for The Abyss is its unsatisfying ending for many people. It's very rushed. There's a vague, maybe they did something to us at sidesteps, scientific explanation as for why everybody's able to suddenly rise out of the water from the depths that they are in. It doesn't quite come together, but I do think in the end, The Abyss, at least by my way of thinking, is a flawed masterpiece. It just botches the ending a bit, but I do think that it succeeds so well throughout most of this movie that that you can probably forgive the ending and just enjoy it for the incredible journey along the way. It would be the crowning achievement in most directors' filmography. But because James Cameron has done so many bigger and better and more revered films, it tends to get pushed down when people talk about James Cameron. So the theatrical version suggests that in the end, the powerful aliens save the Brigman marriage. The special edition is a little different. It indicates that their marriage saves the world, but both are pretty silly notions. But I think by this point, the entertainment value will have been reached for most viewers, whether it's about strained relationships between superpowers or merely the strained relationship between marriage partners. I do think that Cameron's themes are very clear at the end. It's better to love than war. And for a film elevated by the technical aspects, I think it's these character beats that emerge as the most impressive. It's never dwarfed by the immense set design or the eye-popping visuals in its best moments. These characterizations show exactly why Cameron smartly invested time and care in putting them in the film and not excising them. And that pays off dividends beautifully. And I think, personally, The Abyss is one of the best science fiction films of the 1980s. And that's why, on my scale, I give The Abyss four stars out of four. Four stars, to me, means that it's an excellent movie. I would recommend it to anybody. If you haven't seen these movies, I would recommend the theatrical cut before you watch the special edition, because I think once you watch the special edition, it's hard to go back to the edited down version and enjoy it just as much. But either one, I would give it that four stars out of four. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on The Abyss that you want to impart to me, maybe something I didn't cover or reasons why you enjoy this film, or maybe you don't think as highly of it as I do, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Next week, I'm going to be continuing on with a film that I mentioned during the body of this review. In fact, it's a film that does not come from the 1980s. But it's a movie I wanted to be able to fit in if I could on this show because it's something that is very much influential of many films in the 1980s, including The Abyss. And that is the aforementioned 1977 film called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And that'll kick off another three-part series, which I will talk about more on the next show. So if you haven't seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind before or you haven't seen it in a while, I do encourage you to check that film out before I get to the review if you want to keep up with me. Until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. 